the Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. On today's show, we're talking about taxes, specifically a big-time Supreme Court case that could have a huge impact on how online retailers pay sales tax. To discuss the case, we'll be joined by senior tax correspondent Maria Coclineris, who was at the court this week for the much-anticipated oral arguments. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about a case that could turn a courtroom theater into actual Broadway theater. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, there's so much in the news to talk about. Yeah, wow. and I, I've had a tough day. Yeah, what's on? What's uh, what's going on there? The FBI uh, raided my raided my office this morning. Yeah, raided I knew your my desk hotel was room. Well, they were pretty quiet about it. I sit. Yeah. You? I um, yeah. Well, they were in my hotel room when you were, and then they came yeah. here when you were at lunch. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, I mean, you're keeping pretty high profile company these days. Then. Yeah, cause... I mean, well, but the, again, that's privileged. <laughs> Usually, guys, this is just us making some light, like patter between each other and whatever but this is actually what we want to talk about for the whole up top of the show there, there's just so much we've been going in dereliction on. of duty for a couple of weeks here the president's lawyer is in like serious <laughs> yeah. legal uh jeopardy yeah, and we've and we haven't we've, and we, we've been silent just, for too long and we've it's not got, just a political story it's a, a squarely legal story we've got us. fbi raids we've got porn stars in in the courtroom yeah. we've got big law firms We've got everything, guys. Yeah, yeah. And I would also like to make clear to listeners who think like, oh, I've heard all this in the news already. Why am I listening to these guys talk about it? We really want to dig into some of the pieces that maybe flew under your radar. We want to talk about some stuff that's got some big law players in the action. We want to talk a little bit about privilege um, and sort of get into it. But before we do that, let's, because there's been so much, let's do a little recap of everything that's happened with Michael Cohen who is President Trump's personal lawyer for more than a decade and um, a man who described himself as a fixer for Trump. Yeah. So on Monday, April 9th, FBI agents executed a search warrant at uh, Cohen's Manhattan office, at his hotel room, and at his apartment. Um, He had already been in the news a lot over the whole Stormy Daniels affair that he had allegedly coordinated the payment of $120,000 to her to keep her quiet. But this was a a much bigger situation than Mm -hmm. that. Um, it later emerged that they were searching for materials related to the payoff to Daniels and to other similar payoffs to people who had damaging claims against Trump. Yeah, this really kind of began to snowball very quickly. Yes. And uh, the president, as he's wont to do, sort of made his, yes, made his str- feelings. Strangely known. enough, Trump had some things to say about this. Um, but I mean, even by his sort of um, sometimes outspoken standards, this yeah. was a pretty extraordinary response. He... He said that agents had broken into Cohen's office. Broke um, into. A, yes. You know, a federal judge and the highest levels of the Justice Department had to sign off on a search warrant, but broken into. Um, that it was disgraceful, that it was an attack on our country. He later said that, um, you know, apropos of nothing, that he had the authority to fire Robert Mueller. Yeah. Spe- the special counsel who's looking into the, his campaign's uh, dealings with Russia. And reportedly has later mold firing Rod Rosenstein, who is the deputy attorney general who had to sign off but on this warrant. You haven't even said my favorite of the tweets that he sent out. Quote, attorney client privilege is dead. And and we will get there. Uh, we have, there, there There's a lot more uh, uh, implicated in the privilege mm-hmm. stuff, but we're not even done yet. We still have more to sort of unpack here as, in terms of the blow by blow. Now, this didn't you, you mentioned Mueller. This, mm-hmm. did, this did not come directly from Mueller, right? So it's sort of a yes and no okay. situation. Um, it, it has come out in media reports that Mueller did something known as a referral here. So in the course of his investigation, he found something that was not squarely within his the, the bounds of his investigation, which mm-hmm. is 
Russia. Mm -hmm. So he referred it to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, the Manhattan Federal Prosecutor's Office. And they executed this warrant based on other things involving Cohen. So it's come out later that it's – people think it's – uh, bank fraud, dealing with these payoffs, and um, election fraud, because people think that um, it was a, you know, paying these people off to keep them silent ahead of an election was the Daniels perhaps payment, especially it came in like the weeks before an the unreported uh, campaign, campaign donation. donation. Okay, exactly. So we have the this referral, and then we have these raids. What happens after this all, the splashy stuff happens? So that was Monday the 9th. Fast forward to Friday the 13th of April. Um, Trump's lawyers headed to court to try to block the government from seeing the things that they had seized from from Cohen. They said that, you know, that there's um, stuff that's shielded by attorney-client privilege in there, and we should get this first dibs to dig through it, mm-hmm. see which stuff is, is shielded, and then you can dig through it after we've pulled that stuff out. Yeah. Um, on Monday, this past Monday, a federal judge heard those arguments in federal court. Yeah, right. That seems like it probably got pretty contentious, a little crazy oh, in yeah. the courtroom. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what happened during that <laughs> argument? Uh, I mean, well, Stormy showed up like uh, in a pink suit and the tabloids were all chasing her and it was a crazy scene. It was like a just a generally wild sort of courtroom yeah. drama kind of situation. And there's but, so much attention on this. Everyone sort of expected that. Right. So mid-hearing, um, Judge Wood, Judge Kimball Wood, who yeah. was the federal judge overseeing this, this situation, um, she ordered Cohen's attorney to disclose the name of one of the clients he believed was shielded by privilege. A Strangely enough, a big law attorney in the gallery said that, like, you have to disclose, like, yeah. interjected into the case. <laughs> let's, let's take a moment to yeah, pause that, there, which that. I don't think a lot of other right. media has really seized so much on that. I thought that was a joke but when I saw is, it, like, popping up on legal Twitter. Right, I was like, that's... Yeah, yeah. And, and you just said it. Legal Twitter was yeah. all abuzz about that because it's so weird to interject in this way. <laughs> yeah. Courtrooms usually don't operate like the movies. Well, and I, I personally haven't dug into it too hard, but it was a guy from Davis Wright Tremaine, yeah. which is a big media law firm. So... My guess would be he had some experience in um, filing these kind of like in in terms of what courts can and can't reveal about private people because mm-hmm. newspapers file those all the time. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so the judge said you have to if you want to shield this person that like this these things you I know that they don't want to be revealed, but you have to reveal it. So in open court, the person who was revealed was Fox News host Sean Hannity. This is like. Which is it like it, it like gasps in the in the courtroom. It's like and courthouse. Right, rightfully like, so. Like the I end mean, of it's like the end of a Scooby Doo episode. Yes. Like, like yes. that's that that's the first thing that came to my mind. Definitely. Just, like, so people were laughing in court, people were gasping in court. Hannity was on the air on his radio show uh, at yeah. the time. He quickly said that he had, you know, never retained Cohen, that he had gone to him for advice, but it, it raised all sorts of really complicated questions about like, should he have disclosed this? I mean, it's not complicated from our perspective as journalists. He should have disclosed it. But oh, yeah. The, whether the or not he's a journalist is, or whether so, or not Fox should have made him or. OK, so that's sort of a little bit of a side show mm-hmm. and everything that's going on. Where are we now with all of this? So Wood didn't rule on Cohen's bid to dig through this stuff and and, you know, figure out what was privileged. Instead, she hinted that she's going to appoint someone uh, known as a special master. So Mm -hmm. an independent person who's going to dig through all these files, see what's privileged, um, and then let prosecutors have what's not privileged. Yeah. So um, the two sides are wrangling over that right now. Um, They're both saying who they want to be the special master, X, Y, Z. That's pending. Perhaps bigger is the – on 
tomorrow on Friday, there is a hearing in the civil case dealing mm-hmm. with um, Stormy Daniels and Cohen, the case of her trying to get out from underneath her um, non-disclosure agreement that she signed in return for the sort of the hush payment. So that's happening on Friday. I think the big takeaway that everyone um, is sort of talking about is this stuff gets to this guy was Trump's closest confidant for a decade mm-hmm. dealing with all again, as he said, he's a fixer. So he was dealing with a lot of sticky problems for Trump. So I think yeah. inside Trump world, they're really freaking out about what maybe prosecutors got and what they didn't get and how Trump maybe responds to that in terms of really kind of scary stuff, firing firing Mueller, firing Rosenstein, or just more run-of-the-mill stuff. That's what everyone's keeping an eye on right now. So yeah. that's all really interesting, but I want us to get to some of the things that – are squarely of interest for our legal listeners out there. Mm-hmm. Because I think there were a few bits of this that are just, they're so fascinating to me, but maybe everyone's not talking about that. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest ones, especially for anyone who's listening as a lawyer, and you already referenced it a couple times when you were telling us about all these theatrics in the courtroom, um, is the issue of attorney-client privilege. We know how Which the, is dead. We, which is dead, as we know, <laughs> and I think we should have a moment of silence for it. Just wait. Okay, great. Uh, but yeah, we know, we know the president thinks that it's dead. Um, uh, but uh, Andrew Strickler, who's been on the show a bunch of times, uh, wrote a really interesting feature about how the the screening process that will uh, take place here at some point, once they get this all settled uh, uh, settled in court, um, is going to pose some significant challenges for whoever has to do it. Um, now, that's always kind of a thorny process, but I think it's helpful to kind of walk through exactly how this goes. Yeah, because even attorneys out there may not be familiar with what exactly happens yeah. um, in a situation and, like this. And, and, and Bill alluded to kind of how it goes here, but just to, to set it sort of broadly. The raid has been conducted, and what happens now is that a group of people uh, will conduct what's called a privilege screen. And what they do there is they... They look at the attor- they look at the information that they've seized from Cohen, and they decide um, what is protected by attorney-client privilege and what is not. And only the things that are not get turned over to the investigators, the the investigative part of the process. So okay. the people who do the screen are different from the people who will be investigating it and pursuing any charges against Cohen, whatever they may end up being. And the the biggest thing that pops up here as a challenge for the uh, and this is an actual term of art, the taint team. <laughs> This is the team of people who go through the documents. I don't know what the snickering from the gallery is over there. I I, I would appreciate it to keep that in check, Bill. Thank you. Um, <laughs> is the uh, is basically like we were saying at the beginning, all the different hats that Cohen has worn for Trump. Like Bill, right. you said, like he was right. He definitely has been a close confidant and is slash was his attorney. He fancies himself a fixer. I think this graph from uh, Strickler's story kind of. Wraps this all together very nicely. Uh, those issues reportedly include payments made to women claiming they had affairs with Trump, the potential involvement of the National Enquirer in silencing porn actress Stormy Daniels, the Access Hollywood tape in which Trump made vulgar comments about grabbing women, tax issues, and loans backed by Cohen's taxi medallion business. Well, that's what I was going to say, that he's he's. it's not just that he did a lot of stuff for Trump that wasn't necessarily being an attorney. He had business holdings and dealings that were so outside the realm of what a an attorney normally does that he's got real estate. He's got this taxi cab business. He's he like, he's a, the guy fixes problems <laughs> as you can see here. No. Um, yeah. He's got his, got his hands in a lot of different pots and you said they're going back and forth. It looks like, um, of course the, the feds wanted to conduct this privilege screen on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like it might 
happen through, like you say, a special master. They're working that out. But for their part, um, and I think this is pretty interesting, um, the feds have already executed some preliminary warrants on Cohen's emails. Mm -hmm. um, And they said basically through the through that search process, it doesn't look like Cohen is doing much legal work at all. Uh, these He's days. essentially not a lawyer. And so that's that's yes. essentially their argument. And they said, and because of that, we don't think very much of this should be shielded by privilege. And we're capable of, um, you know, conducting that screen ourselves. Well, I think well, that tees up I'd Amber. I'd like to, to really unspool that because <laughs> yeah. that's what I wanted to talk about today. I, I don't think a lot of people really paid attention at all, but this is kind of just an interesting nugget. Yeah. Um, so he has a big law connection. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, paid by Squire Patton Boggs an annual $500,000 fee. Um, it was called a strategic alliance fee. I got to find me a strategic ally. Yeah, we <laughs> could all could use $500,000. That'd be lovely. Well, um, so a motion that the prosecutors filed last week says that he didn't do a lot to get that $500,000 That seems to be a common fee. theme here. It's like, <laughs> what, 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 what kind of legal work is this guy? Yeah. Mike, what would you say... You do here exactly. You get you get one filing with like a tank of gas or something. I don't so know here's what, you, is, what they the said, guys. Cullen. They said he maintained an independent office and referred only five clients to the firm during the year of the agreement. The agreement was signed in March of last year. Okay. Um, as part of the agreement, he had an office at the firm, but maintained a separate server. The firm didn't have access to his locked office, so he was pretty separated out there. How did this all come out anyway? Squire, I mean, I'm sure Squire wasn't thrilled to see their name get... Uh... Yeah, so Cohen was saying that the evidence the government wants includes some privileged communications, including some of the work he did with Squire. Including so the work I do for this very prestigious law firm. <laughs> right, right. So the government, basically, <laughs> yeah. the, okay. the laughter you guys have right there uh-huh. is essentially the equivalent of the government's filing. Okay. Uh, yeah. They said that's just bunk. They said, and I quote, it's unlikely that a significant volume of attorney-client privileged material, yeah. if any, was seized in connection with Cohen's relationship with that law firm. Yeah. The government said, you know, he only referred five clients. He didn't maintain timesheets at Squire. He didn't bill any clients through the firm. It just seems like a very tenuous relationship. So that's how the government responded. I think we've sort of giggled at the idea of Squire responding, but have they, have they responded to well, this? They've said a few things. Squire said that the activities under investigation are not at all connected to the firm or no, any of the firm's all. clients, and that Cohen was never an employee. He, was he wasn't an a partner. He was an ally. Right. And, and, and a just strategic a, one at that. Right, right. Um, and... On top of that, Cohen and the firm mutually ended this agreement at the beginning of March. So it literally lasted one year. Got it. So a firm spokesperson, though, declined to say why they ended this arrangement. Well, I think that gets us caught up for now. And I think we should stop the segment before something else happens, to be quite candid with you guys. Definitely. (laughs) Cool. Thanks. week, the Supreme Court heard a tax case, South Dakota versus Wayfair, that could have a huge impact for retailers everywhere about whether sellers without a physical location in a state can still be compelled to remit state tax. Here to give us a look at the case is senior tax correspondent Maria Coquilinaris, who was at the court for oral arguments. Welcome, Maria. Hi. So you have, um, in some of your reporting, called this case the most pivotal state tax case in decades. So I want everyone to know why this is so important. Can you just give us the basics of what's happening here? Sure. 
So um, all of you um, out there make purchases. Um, if you go into a physical store and make a purchase, that store is required to charge you sales tax and then remit tax to the state. If you order online, in many cases, not all, but if you order online, the online company is not required to charge you tax and submit it to the state unless they have what the term is physical presence in the state. They are physically located in the state. So this case would change all that. Um, if it goes the way of South Dakota, the petitioner, that would mean that the Supreme Court has ruled that it does not matter what kind of a business you are and where you are physically located. If you're selling into the state, whether it's Across state lines, online, physically in the state, you are required to collect and submit tax to that state. It has huge implications, especially for Internet transactions. It has major implications for anybody who buys anything on the Internet. Um, and that is most of us. And, yeah, that's all of us. Yeah, right. And Maria, as as you said, the big sort of central question here is about physical presence within a state. Um, but as you hinted there, uh, this is uh, the the state of South Dakota brought this case, and it's against Wayfair. Can you can you talk about how we got to the court here? I mean, how it sort of became a ripe legal issue in this way? Sure. So this issue um, has been around for a very long time. It predates the internet by decades. It started with catalog companies. The first Supreme Court case that dealt with this was in 1967. It was called National Bellis Hess versus Department of Revenue. And in that case, the Supreme Court said for the first time that you need to have a physical presence in the state, physically located in the state, yeah. before the state can make you collect tax. Mm -hmm. In that time, it was about a catalog merchant. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 1992, it came up again. Quill, again, another catalog merchant. And the Supreme Court reaffirmed the physical presence test. Since then, of course, everything has changed and it's changed rapidly. We may sometimes still buy from catalogs, but most of us who buy without going into a physical store are buying on the Internet. And that has changed the dynamic of retail sales. And that's, Maria, that's the, the sort of the crux of South, South Dakota's argument here, right? It's sort of, yeah. could you walk us through what their legal argument is for, for you know, why they want the court to side with them? Yes, the, South Dakota's legal argument is very much based in uh, facts about the Internet, that the Internet has changed the world, uh, that the Quill Court in 1992, and especially the Bellis-Huss Court in 1967, could never have envisioned how the retail landscape would be changed by the Internet. And South Dakota makes two points to the court. The first is regarding itself as a state. It says that it is not able to collect certain taxes, and that is really hurting its budget. It says that these merchants are doing business with South Dakota residents, and they should be collecting and remitting taxes to the state. It says that it needs this revenue to fund infrastructure, education, and all the other things that states need to pay for. Secondly, 
the argument is regarding what they say is a main street retailer. And this is the person who has a store, mom and pop. The brick and mortar shop. Brick and mortar shops. Yeah. They have to collect tax while the online store does not. And the brick and mortar stores are very much in favor of what South Dakota is doing. Um, they say it is purely a fairness issue. They are getting killed. Yeah. Um, and they had hoped for some congressional solution. There hasn't been one. And now they are hoping for a judicial solution. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the things that I love about this case. I was actually talking about this with Bill before uh, we started uh, recording with you is that this isn't a thing where like, you know, there's some kind of unresolved legal question or there's like a, a a circuit split. South Dakota brought this case sort of in open defiance of the precedent trying to change the precedent. Isn't that right, Maria? That is exactly what they did. In early 2016, they passed a law, and the law was written exactly like a legal brief. Yeah. <laughs> the, whole, the whole purpose, and they, and they were, to their credit, never tried to hide it. Yeah. They were very upfront about it. The whole purpose of their law was to hopefully get a quill challenge. And now here they are. Yes. And now, uh, and now here they are against really some tough odds. I mean, I had I had very smart people who know who who have forgotten more about state tax than I'll ever know <laughs> look me in the eye and say the Supreme Court will never take this case. Yeah. And because of some of the things that you mentioned, there's no circuit split here. What are the foundational legal issues here? Uh, and people were quite surprised when the court decided to take it. I love these kind of cases that bring something new to the table like that. And I, I specifically on the podcast, we talk a lot about changing landscapes and changing technology, impacting law that isn't keeping up. And that's definitely this case. Um, but that leads us to a story that I loved that you wrote um, just this week. Supreme Court frustrated with arguments in Wayfair case, which is a headline that just really grabbed me, Maria. So I want to hear about all the things they were frustrated about. Tell me what it was like in that courtroom. So first, I want to say that for me as a state tax reporter, this was like the Super Bowl. Yeah. Being able to be at the U.S. Supreme Court as they heard this case was amazing on every level. And one of, one of the levels was to hear the back and forth, and frustrated definitely is an accurate word. Um, it started with the South Dakota Attorney General, Marty Jackley, who um, began in front of the justices by talking about um, South Dakota's law and the fairness issues and um, how, how South Dakota needs revenue. And he got two sentences out, maybe, before Justice Sonia Sotomayor interrupted him immediately. And she basically said to him, Quill is not the problem. Your state is the problem. <laughs> right. You should be finding a way to make people collect this tax and not coming to us, basically, with this. And he continued talking about their law and their scheme. And he, she said, I'm not concerned about your scheme. I'm concerned <laughs> about precedent and all the lawsuits that are going to arise from this. Yeah. And 
a lot of the frustration which we really heard uh, Justice Breyer articulate and Justice Kagan to some extent, but really Justice Breyer um, was probably the most frustrated member of the court uh, who talked about how he felt so, on that day. So, Maria, it sounds like some of the frustration from the justices was that they weren't quite sure that this was a, you know, an issue that they should handle. Is it something that maybe Congress rather than the court should take up? So let me give you a little bit of background. And of course, the role of Congress is critical here. It's pivotal. As you all know, it takes four justices to decide to take a Supreme Court case. Um, I think it was very clear that the other five We don't know, of course, who they were, but the other five were probably like, are we really going to do this? And that really came through so loud and clear um, as the arguments went on. And what had happened here is that one of the justices, Anthony Kennedy, had written in a concurrence in another case that it would be time for the court to revisit Quill. And that helped spur the South Dakota case, and he really was seen as pivotal. But the issue here, as far as the court is concerned, and one of the key reasons why they became so frustrated is because this case hinges on what is known as the Dormant Commerce Clause. The Dormant Commerce Clause is not actually in the Constitution It's just implied, and it's really a construct of the court. So because there's no constitutional foundation for the court to discuss, they were, on Tuesday at arguments, spent really the bulk of the time talking about policy. And that is what got Justice Breyer so visibly frustrated. Yeah, no. Some of them seemed annoyed by having to like. They, it almost seemed like the AG or, or the, uh, the 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 South Dakota uh, lawyer was like making a making a political speech almost, like, like like you were talking about with Main Street and you know on like retail giants things like that. And Justice Breyer is left to ask questions that are you know about things concerning how does the lack of tax revenue affect a state. And how many sales does it take before a state has nexus? Right, right. And these are policy questions. So we're left with this murky thing where the justices seem annoyed. Maybe this is an issue that would be more squarely in the bounds of Congress. I always like to end these types of interviews when somebody's been in the court to hear the arguments with a little prognostication. How do you feel like this one's going to turn out, Maria? Well, that's difficult to do. But I can talk about what a source has said that makes sense to me. And that is that the Supreme Court is about getting to five. And right now, four seem to be on the side of South Dakota. So that would leave one more for South Dakota to pull in. It's a little bit more difficult to count four for Wayfair. Um, it certainly is impossible, but I think still um, getting to five for South Dakota, even after that argument, is a bit easier. Not for sure, and I could be wrong, but that's what that's what a source has told me, and as I said, it made sense to me. Yeah, it's always a bit of a guessing game with the Supreme Court, but 
Thanks for leaving us with that to chew over, Maria. Really appreciate you talking us through this case. My pleasure. show with something offbeat. And Bill, I know you've got one to talk about today. We've got a good one this week that involves the idea of someone being sued and being like, oh yeah, you're going to sue me? Well, get ready. (laughs) I love this story already. (laughs) So big time Broadway producer, Scott Rudin. um, He is going to make a stage adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about on the show before. Uh, And it's written by Aaron Sorkin. It's going to star Jeff Daniels. Supposed to come out in December. Big whole deal. So he signed a deal for the rights to the book when Harper Lee was still alive. Mm-hmm. She passed away, and and suddenly he started getting pushback from um, from her heirs or her estate. I'm, I'm not sure exactly okay. what, but saying that there's this provision in the rights deal that says you can't make big changes to the book. You have to stick to the spirit of the book. So Classic writer being yeah. t- taking so issue. So they go back and forth and say, because <laughs> press interviews had come out with Sorkin saying that yeah. he was going to make Atticus Finch this more complicated character, that he was going to start the play as like an apologist for Southern racism and then sort of throughout oh, the play. Oh, and like have a transition. He would have an arc yeah. and morph into the righteous character that you remember from, yeah. from right. Gregory Peck and whatnot. So after a back and forth, they couldn't come to an agreement. The heirs filed a lawsuit in Alabama federal court saying that you had violated this agreement. The play can't go on. (laughs) Nice. Thanks. Um, So that happened a few weeks ago. This week, Rudin filed a case in New York, in Manhattan federal court that intros with, we need to get this dealt with really quick. So I'm offering to come into your courthouse and perform the entire play in front of you with Jeff Daniels. <laughs> that was like in the intro to the complaint. That's I love it. It, just, it was like such a boss move of like, yeah, you're going to sue me in Alabama. I'm going to go into a courtroom this week and perform the entire <laughs> so show. So that's just the preview of the actual play then. Instead of just like, you know, how there's sometimes like an off-Broadway. Instead, this one's, um, you know, this exactly. is way off-Broadway. Exactly. It's, it's, it's downtown. And, and the reason why they did this was because, A, they said that the the thing in the contract is not what the script looks like. Yeah. It's not whether the script departs from the book. It's whether the play departs from the book. Right. So okay. the, the idea was you can't just read the play. You can't read the script. You can't read the script. You have to you have, have the whole to experience. That Jeff Daniels performing this will make it, you, that, that it'll it'll right. sway you. And right. the other thing was that he was saying that like the financing for this is not fully lined up. So like if we, <laughs> if there's this lawsuit going on, the play is just not going to happen. You're so right. we need to get it done with now. I like the idea of a judge of that actually happening and a judge moving f- instead from legal decision maker to like critic. And I also like, love the I idea. I find the uh, dramaturgical components here to be just a little muddled. Calling Ben Brantley to the stand. <laughs> I also just love the idea of calling up Jeff Daniels and being like, so I know you signed on for this play, but first we're going to need you to do a really good job. For a judge. The defense brings up as exhibit A a projector and they show the uh, pooping scene I was saying, from, uh, from <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. And Dumber. And just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a classic defense. <laughs> Kelly, our producer's laughing at me saying pooping on the show, but you, I think it I think it was warranted. You beat me to it. I thought yeah. it would be like if somebody was like, hey, do the diarrhea scene. <laughs> <laughs> Like, All right, chain so, him to the bed like something wild. Before this gets any any weirder, uh, we will keep an eye on that one. Uh, I, it is a. I it, hope literally. I hope that if it happens, that one of us can can go and can cover go it. cover it. Right, yeah, exactly. Definitely, definitely, we'll send one of you guys to cover it if that happens. 
wrap us up for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. It was a pleasure as always. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Christine Powell. Our guests this week, Maria Coclinaris. Contributing reporters, Andrew Strickler, Sam Reisman, Jack Newsham, and Bonnie Esslinger. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. If you like anything you've heard today and want to know more about it, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Thanks, and see you again next week.